Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is Michael Sony. I am the director of the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies, and it is my very great pleasure to welcome you to one of the highlights of our year, the uh, annual Charles Neuhauser Memorial Lecture. The lecture series was established in 1988 in honor of Charles Neuhauser uh, through the generosity of his brother, Paul Neuhauser, who is here with us today. Uh, and we're very pleased to have members of the, members of the Neuhauser family, uh, the uh, original supporters of the, of the, um, uh, of the lecture series. Uh, and we're very glad to have them and their friends joining us today. Uh, Charles Neuhauser, or Charlie as he was known, was a member of the class of 1953. Uh, he spent much of his career from 1958 to 1981 in the Central Intelligence Agency. In the mid-1960s, Charles came back to Harvard and spent a year at the predecessor of the Fairbanks Center, the uh, Center for East Asian Research at Harvard. This was, of course, at the height of the Cultural Revolution. And Charles's goal while here at Harvard was to work with our scholarly community to try to understand why it was that Mao Zedong seemed to be tearing down everything that he had built since 1949, and then to take that knowledge back to the intelligence community and back to the policymaking world. Um, this approach. Uh, blended academic scholarship with real-world practical policymaking, and we have sought to continue that tradition with the lecture series that was founded in his honor. Today's speaker, as I will uh, detail in a moment, truly epitomizes the spirit of both Charles and the Neuhauser lecture series. Ambassador Samantha Power is Anna Lind Professor of the Practice of Global Lead Leadership and Public Policy at, Harvard Kennedy, at the Harvard Kennedy School. She is also the William D. Zabel Professor of the Practice in Human Rights at Harvard Law School. She began her career as a journalist reporting from places such as Bosnia, East Timor, Kosovo, Rwanda, Sudan, and Zimbabwe. She was the founding executive director of the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Kennedy School. From 2009 to 2013, Power served on the National Security Council as Special Assistant to the President for Multilateral, Multilateral Affairs and Human Rights. In 2013, Ambassador Power became the 28th uh, permanent representative of the United States to the United Nations. In that role, which she held until 2017, she was the public face of US opposition to Russian aggression in the Ukraine and Syria, she negotiated the toughest sanctions in a generation against North Korea. She lobbied to secure the release of political prisoners, helped build new international law to cripple the financial networks of ISIL, and supported US efforts to end the Ebola crisis. Her book, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2003. She's also the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers uh, Chasing the Flame, One Man's Fight to Save the World, and most recently, The Education of an Idealist, which was named one of the best books of 2019 by the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Economist, and multiple other journals. She is a Shakira fan. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Who is it? <laughs> Ambassador Power is going to speak to us today about human rights a central theme of her career both in government and in the university and about China. It's a timely topic 
the one that has been somewhat overshadowed uh, recently by other developments in China and in the US-China bilateral relationship. We've been active here at the Fairbank Center, as many of you know, in drawing attention to human rights abuses, in particular uh, the situation in Xinjiang, a stark reminder that even fundamental cornerstones of the international human rights regime, such as the freedom of religion, assembly, and expression, are not universally respected in our world. We've also sponsored a number of recent events that interrogate the arguments that human rights, the human rights regime does not reflect universal values, but only Western values, and that it is incompatible with traditional Asian or Chinese values. Human rights, as our events have, have as, as our speakers have discussed, are part of the social and political framework in Japan, in South Korea, in Hong Kong, and most notably in Taiwan, where Chinese values, traditions, cultures, and languages flourish alongside supposedly Western ideas of human rights. The distinction between states that value human rights and those that diminish them, of course, is not clear cut, and we do not need to look far to see the uneven upholding of human rights here in the United States. All of which is to say that ambassador's power, ambassador powers expertise and experience is both hugely important and timely. And we're so grateful to be able to welcome her here as the 2020 Newhouser Lecturer. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Power. Thank you very much, um, Michael, for having me and for your leadership of the center. I can only imagine the ferment here. Um, I've been away uh, from Harvard, or was away, for nearly a decade. And coming back, of course, one of the major changes is the centrality of the set of issues that get engaged and debated here uh, to everything going on in the world. Um, thank you also, uh, Vice Provost Elliott, who vanished. Oh, yes. Thank you. For, yes, switch seat, who was here. But uh, thank you for being here. Um, and thank you, all of you. I'm feeling really bad for the people who are standing up. Can we? We can't formalize our violation of the fire code by having them. Uh, no. Okay. You all know the rules. I, I um, again, too, too freewheeling here, but they look very uncomfortable. Um, uh, I just am so honored to be a part of this lecture, uh, honoring Charles Newhouser, and honored also that Paul his lovely wife are here um, and that they have set up this lecture that does something that really should be done more often, which is try to bring the streams of academia together with those uh, from government service. And so I'm so pleased to be a part of it. I don't know if Bill Alford is here. Is he here, Bill? Yes. Okay. So thank you to Bill Alford who uh, lobbied me incessantly um, uh, because I was busy working on a book and uh, we created this oasis together on the horizon the day that I'd be done with the book, done with the book tour to be able to be here and be with you. But above all, thanks to Bill because while I was at Harvard Law School, uh, I had the honor and privilege of learning about the rule of law in China from Professor Alford when it was still a really, I think even then, a nascent field. This is now nearly a quarter century ago. I did not know when I was sitting as a uh, 2L, I think, in that class, uh, that one day what I was learning would help me in my negotiations with the Chinese. Uh, I don't think Bill would have guessed it either, uh, but uh, on the basis of my academic performance. But um, nonetheless, it's great to come full circle and to be here back with you. Um, I'm sad today that Rod McFarker uh, is no longer with us. It is really good to know in advance of a talk 
precisely who is going to tell you that you are unsalvageably wrong. <laughs> and uh, Rod not being here, I miss him for so many reasons. But today, I know that he would be the one uh, after this talk to tell me how wrong I am. Uh, so I look forward to other people performing that role. Um, so I'd like to dive um, into the topic uh, at the heart of my lecture. First, by making clear uh, what the lecture is not on, um, or at least trying to make that clear. I am not here to discuss human rights in China. I will touch upon human rights inside China a little bit uh, in service of my larger um, argument discussion. Um, but that is uh, a topic that I have very uh, strong feelings and views and concerns about, but is not the topic of this lecture. Uh, nor uh, am I here to talk about Chinese, China's impact on the so-called international liberal order writ large, or the rule-based order. Um, this, I find, an overbroad and poorly parsed uh, topic. And here, I just commend Professor Johnston. I'm sorry, I know he's not here today, but I think his sort of dissection and disaggregation of the idea, even, of the international liberal order in the recent uh, journal of international issue of international security, I think is incredibly important and cogent and gets us thinking in new ways about how to parse questions of China's relationship to the international liberal order as a whole. Um, my emphasis today is narrower than that uh, topic uh, that Professor Johnston delved into. It is on the question of what China's rise and its growing assertiveness portends for human rights at the UN and around the world, so in other parts of the world, including China's near abroad, but well beyond that. And uh, I want to say, because my topic is not um, the most upbeat topic <laughs> uh, in the history of uh, the Neuhauser Lecture, I suspect, uh, but I do want to say at the outset, particularly in light of some of the politics of China right now and and um, some of the, the sort of overbroad ways in which uh, we all risk, especially those of us who are not China scholars, but risk talking about China. But I want to say at the outset that the most important initiatives, the most important initiatives that I was involved in while I got to serve as US ambassador to the United Nations, from securing the Paris Agreement on climate um, to uh, spearheading, as the United States uh, helped do, the Iran uh, nuclear deal, to leading the unprecedented global response to the Ebola epidemic. Uh, every one of these initiatives that I feel are sort of the most important parts of uh, the United States' uh, track record when it comes to leadership in the, role, in, in the world came about because of strong US-Chinese collaboration. So I really do want to say that at the outset. I, I believe that building a strategic relationship with China is essential to advancing a whole range of US interests in whether the environmental realm or all facets of the national security realm, never mind, of course, the economic realm. Um, but having said that, I also believe that we are currently underestimating what could be profoundly negative effects um, on the international human rights regime as a whole, uh, flawed though that uh, regime has always been, and it's really important to take uh, to be aware of those flaws and, and the, the absolutely uh, inconsistent application of those rights over time in various places. But nonetheless, the negative effects 
of growing Chinese assertiveness in the international domain on international human rights as a whole. So that's the, the sort of bleak topic uh, that I want to dive into. Um, President Xi has been explicit, as all of you know, about China's desire to provide an alternative model that does not imitate Western values. And as he has put it, quote, China offers a new option for other countries and nations who want to speed up their development while preserving their independence, end quote. And the word independence here, I think for, for most of us uh, sort of international observers, is used, I think, as shorthand to signal to other countries that China will not be butting its nose uh, into their internal human rights practices. So in other words, signaling to countries that they will get to be independent and have their own view about the pace uh, of economic development and the pace of political development uh, in those countries. But what is this uh, likely to, be, to, to mean? During my time at the UN from 2013 to uh, January of 2017, I saw competing impulses from Chinese diplomats. On the one hand, China's internal stability remained its government's overriding concern. That was clear every day. Over many decades, US diplomats have recognized that our national security is enhanced by a more democratic world uh, around us in which we thus have more democratic partners to enlist in meeting shared challenges. So that contested a little bit more now, uh, of course, in the United States. But by and large, that idea that we are better off at home and indeed more secure, more prosperous, the more democracy there is beyond our borders, that's been a kind of working premise. China, of course, sees domestic security as the most important foundation of its national security. As the historian Arnie Wested has argued, Xi Jinping's China appears to be, quote, nationalist, not universalist. Uh, to use uh, Wested's words. So there's that. But on a number of fronts, what I began to see, especially toward the tail end of my time at the UN, was China beginning to assert itself into areas that it had traditionally played more of an observer role in, including when it came to human rights at the UN. And I'm going to come back to this uh, in detail. So my own view, and I'm really happy and even eager to be challenged here, is that um, we do not yet know for sure whether Beijing intends to proactively, as some have put it, make the world safe for autocracy and authoritarianism, right? Some of you have heard that uh, expression. But my argument today is that almost regardless of how much intentionality there is behind uh, Beijing's efforts, beyond its borders, China's influence on human rights around the world is likely to be profound and ever more profound. And so um, as I take you through this, I'm, go I'm very, very influenced by this article uh, in International Security that I mentioned where Professor Johnson disaggregated this idea of the rules-based international order into a bunch of different axes. So I am uh, taking his lead, going to try to assess China's impact on human rights beyond its borders, but by prying apart a number of the different roles that Beijing is playing currently, can play, and likely will play. 
And I'm going to address each of these roles in turn. And I will say that, you know, I think on, on some of the trends, reasonable people might be able to agree and disagree. But I think it is really important to disaggregate in this way. Because I think when this topic is discussed, and it's not discussed as often as you would think, um, a lot of things are kind of lumped together uh, pretty unhelpfully, which I think has obscured uh, analysis of, of this question. Um, and so I'm hoping to, at a minimum, offer the beginnings of a taxonomy, and then people can go forth and then, you know, kind of um, slice these, these categories uh, even more finely, because this is just a first crack. So the first way in which China, I think, is going to influence, is influencing human rights and uh, democracy around the world is by its example, of course. China provides a model of authoritarian capitalist governance, and it's proving a really powerful uh, model. So I'll come back to that. The second sort of category, in my mind at least, is China as an enabler, uh, irrespective of its mens rea, irrespective of its intentions, but as an enabler uh, by virtue of refining and exporting a vast arsenal of technology and other internal security tools uh, that can be used by fellow governments uh, to repress their citizens. So again, think of the, the first two categories here, are, you don't even have to, to get into the question of what Beijing's intentions are outside its borders about political regime types. Um, but just by virtue of some of the commercial practices and assets that Beijing can now make available, that is going to have uh, at least some impact on human rights uh, and democratic trends around the world. The third category that I'll talk about is that is China as a kind of more active, proactive intervener, but not in the way intervention is currently understood uh, or is often understood. And this is that just China has a significant and growing capacity to influence political developments inside other countries, including through influencing state, public, and corporate views and practices. So again, example, enabler, active player, active intervener with more intentionality. So I'll come back to that. And then fourth and finally, uh, the category that I would offer is that of norm shaper. And here's where I come back to where I, I spent so much time um, uh, during the Obama administration, and that is uh, the United Nations. China is the second most powerful country at the United Nations, um, and that's uh, getting to be a closer call the more the US retreats in terms of funding, in terms of membership of various UN bodies. Uh, but you know, China is now the second largest donor to the UN, having very proudly overtaken Japan, uh, something that it was thinking about for a long time, and Japan was thinking an awful lot about as well. Um, and uh, with such uh, financial leverage uh, comes different forms of bureaucratic and political power. As a norm shaper at the UN, China, I think, increasingly sees itself as having a vested interest in thickening the shield of sovereignty, the sovereignty shield of international law to insulate countries, starting with itself, of course, but not just itself, to insulate countries from criticism for their human rights practices. So those are my ideas here. Example, enabler, active agent or intervener, and norm shaper. 
And again, I think these categories can be sliced even, even more finely. Uh, I will then close with very sort of brief recommendations for what those who believe that international human rights are a constructive force in world affairs, and those of us who wish to strengthen our own democracies and not see these vulnerabilities uh, exploited, what we should do. And again, I want to stress, I have not discussed this topic before um, in a public setting, and I'm very eager for, for pushback and, and for comments um, in the discussion period. So that's my plan. So starting with China as a potent example in the international system. The appeal of democracy, as we know, has always been tied in part to its ability to deliver for people's quality of life and economic well-being. China's well-documented economic success, combined with a global backlash against the growing inequality uh, marking democracies, has at the very least, it's fair to say, complicated this argument. Economic development and political freedom are no longer seen as needing to go hand in hand. It is a fact that an authoritarian system has lifted 850 million people out of poverty. Foreign leaders, who might be seeking to repress their populations in order to maintain power or accrete power, and foreign voters in uh, systems where elections are held who seek answers for their economic challenges can take inspiration from China's well-known uh, economic success. If Singapore was once a tiny exception that proved the rule about the indispensability of political freedom to economic success, China's story is a mammoth exception that is now seen by many to have swallowed the rule whole. And, of course, China is not the only autocratic or authoritarian system delivering high economic returns. As uh, Roberto Stefan Foa and Yashka Monk have pointed out, within the next five years, the total GDP of countries that Freedom House considers undemocratic, like Saudi Arabia, Russia, and China, will surpass the combined GDP of the US, Australia, Japan, Germany, and the world's other democracies. It is immensely challenging, to be clear, to pinpoint the specific effects of China now constituting a very different kind of city on the hill. Governments that repress, of course, may do so irrespective of who they see doing what in other parts of the world. Governments that are pressed, pressured to democratize or to liberalize are also mainly influenced by indigenous forces. Nonetheless, we know that China's standing in the eyes of others has improved dramatically. Gallup polling from 2019 shows that across 133 countries, Chinese leadership is rated now more favorably than that of the United States. And while people around the world are more or less evenly split about whether they hold a favorable or unfavorable view of China, gives you a sense of America's unfavorability ratings, but uh, so they're more or less split on favorable or unfavorable, its favorability numbers are relatively high, particularly in the developing world and amongst younger generations. In countries like Tunisia, Nigeria, and Kenya, all countries we would like to see making progress in shoring up democratic institutions, views of China today are markedly positive. Meanwhile, in Brazil, Mexico, Poland, and even Australia, double-digit gaps exist between those in the 18 to 29 range, 
years years of age, I should say, uh, range who have a favorable view of China, and those from older generations over 50 who are more skeptical. Now again, popularity doesn't necessarily inspire emulation, but it can be a measure of influence. It does not seem like a stretch to argue that when Beijing bans many of the world's most popular websites, including YouTube, Facebook, Google, it can affect the calculus of some popularly elected and some non-elected leaders who would like nothing more than to have grounds to regulate social media and the internet or to enhance censorship and surveillance, not to protect their people, but to protect themselves from scrutiny. In 2017, for example, Tanzania's Deputy Minister for Transport and Communications was pretty explicit, saying China is a model now uh, for internet regulation. When Beijing locks up more than a million Chinese Muslims in internment camps and frames the measure as effective counterterrorism, it shows leaders thinking about how to manage dissent or actual terrorism, the tactics employed by one of the two most powerful countries in the world. Bearing in mind, of course, that the other, the United States, has also uh, in the past embraced torture, extra legal uh, detention, and other illiberal ends justifies the means uh, tactics. So again, this is not, there's a, a broader picture here that, that is not the topic of this talk, but we have to bear in mind. China is innovating in how it uh, suppresses dissent. It, of course, is developing this uh, social credit system um, using artificial intelligence to process a mix of information about every Chinese citizen's movements, purchases, social media postings, religion, as well as the records of their family members and friends. The government, as we know, then, I guess, plans to continually update this score to be able to classify citizens as untrustworthy. And that can determine everything from their access to jobs and social services to whether they should be picked up for preemptive questioning or allowed to travel. Although uh, various cities and provinces, as I understand it, are at different stages of implementation of the citizen score, already the Chinese government's own data shows that due to, pat to bad social credit, more than 13 million people have been classified as unsafe, and its citizens have been blocked from traveling on planes and trains more than 25 million times. It does not seem far-fetched to imagine repressive rulers around the world adopting such tactics, reasoning that if President Xi can maintain social control of 1.4 billion people, these techniques could be useful on a far smaller scale. So that's China as an example, absent intentionality beyond its borders. Okay, now China as an enabler. China is more than an example. It is a major commercial and innovative powerhouse, which has been developing a domestic arsenal for internal security that is ripe for export. Beijing is building digital infrastructure we know all over the world, and it provides technology with training on how to use it. According to a recent Carnegie Endowment study, which some of you I'm sure have seen, Chinese companies are already supplying their AI surveillance technology to more than 60 countries. China often accompanies its product pitches with soft loans, and countries like Kenya, Laos, Mongolia, Uganda, and Uzbekistan have bought the package. The Belt and Road Initiative includes the Digital Silk Road that would bring BRI national representatives to China uh, for workshops on in internet communications technology policy, including what they call public opinion guidance or internet control. 
Huawei has supplied facial recognition equipment to more than 200 cities worldwide from Western Europe to large swaths of Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Back in 2011, Ecuador became one of the first to employ China's video surveillance system. It's named ECU-911, and it was used by the country's intelligence agency to train, to, excuse me, to trail, intimidate, and imprison political opponents of Ecuador's previous president, Rafael Correa. In Nairobi today, in Kenya, surveillance cameras flash at every passing car, capturing and analyzing the identities of their occupants. This is technology, again, provided by China. Even if China is pursuing commercial sales for profit and not in order to spread repression, we can, we can stay neutral on questions of intentionality. The tools that China has brought to the open market are those that enhance uh, repressive capabilities. Some of the tools, some, of course, many don't, but these do. Western governments, it has to be said again, have been exporting arms, riot control equipment, and other tools of repression for decades. But over time, thanks, for example, in this country to Congress's interventions, regulatory mechanisms, and some safeguards like the export control regime and end-use monitoring efforts by our embassies around the world have been introduced to try to limit these sales' abusive uh, end-uses. For example, countries under U.S. sanctions like Cuba, Iran, and Syria are barred from receiving such goods by our national law. The Chinese government exhibits uh, not very much curiosity about the likely end use of such products and appears to have no qualms about exporting such technology to countries like Iran, Myanmar, Venezuela, and Zimbabwe. Third category, uh, which is, I think, the one that uh, there's a, great, a pretty healthy debate going on about what China's intentions are. But this third category is this idea of China as a determined change agent or meddler, intervener. Uh, so we, we've already gone over that China provides a potent example for how to use law and repression to control one's population. China has brought to market highly sophisticated means to do so. China could be indifferent, in fact, to how liberally or how repressively a foreign government acts toward its people. And yet over time, in just playing, performing these two roles that I've already discussed, China could leave a really large mark. But I think a key question is, is Beijing going further? Do they want to go further? Are they proactively seeking to move countries in an autocratic direction to make the world safe for autocracy and authoritarianism? Again, views, uh, I think, vary widely. Uh, but it's an open question about how China's leverage, its development assistance, its military assistance, growing military assistance, the extent to which uh, those are going to be tools of leverage uh, used to seek to affect political developments in other countries. The economic leverage, um, most of you know well, under President Xi, China has capitalized on its economic heft to turbocharge its diplomacy and its international development, two cornerstones of US power since the end of World War II, and tools that the United States has tried to use to support the consolidation of democracies around the world. China's foreign affairs budget has doubled, more than doubled at this point probably, since 2013. And this is, of course, as the US State Department budget stagnates 
and as career U.S. diplomats uh, flee an administration that has largely shunned expertise and, with only a couple exceptions, diplomacy. Uh, <laughs> just a few months ago, China overtook the United States as having the largest number of diplomatic posts around the world. Greatly enhancing its influence, China now provides, as we know, more development financing than the entire World Bank. It accounts for more lending than the IMF. Research from Harvard's Carmen Reinhardt and two of her colleagues at the Kiel Institute in Germany suggests that among the top 50 recipient countries of Chinese direct lending, some 40% of those countries' total external debt, on average, is owed to China. So there's leverage in all this. Uh, given this leverage, China could be extremely influential if it chooses to take sides in the internal affairs of other countries or to throw its weight overtly or covertly behind repressive candidates in those countries that have elections or to try to undermine civil society, independent media, or other democratic forces. Already, uh, we see a number of players on the scene who are taking actions of the kind I've just described in other countries, countries you're not, we're not used to hearing about in this context. Cash-rich Gulf states, um, uh, Prime Minister Orban, President Erdogan, President Sisi, more and more of these countries acting beyond their borders in vulnerable countries particularly or in weak states, actively promoting their political visions and using what leverage they have but China has so much more leverage. So far, we mainly see China pushing for distinct outcomes inside other countries as they relate, as events relate to China's near abroad. Beijing has been extremely aggressive beyond its borders, for example, in trying to shape developments inside Hong Kong and Taiwan, and to shape public opinion about Hong Kong and Taiwan further afield. A New York Times investigation showed how China has used Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube to spread misinformation abroad in English that attempted to discredit the Hong Kong protesters. Operators working on behalf of the Chinese government appear to have bought pre-existing social media accounts in mass and then sent millions of tweets and posts from those accounts that attacked the protesters and critics of the Chinese government's practices. When Twitter unearthed this Chinese-run campaign to suppress support internationally for the protesters, the platform cracked down on thousands of fake accounts, taking down 1,000 state-directed accounts and suspending more than 200,000 other accounts. Soon thereafter, though, dozens of accounts popped up that tweeted messages matching word for word some of those that Twitter had deleted. So this is, of course, a moving target. Chinese state-run media outlets also paid for uh, English language posts on Facebook and Twitter, blasting out ads across these networks that depicted the protesters as the public enemy, as people who were sowing chaos, etc. Facebook and Twitter took money from Chinese media to spread this narrative all over the world. To its credit, Twitter has since said it will no longer accept advertising from state-controlled news media entities, but Facebook, to nobody's shock, has not changed its rules. <laughs> We see China reaching into other countries um, and into multinational corporations to use its leverage to alter statements about events, again, in these critical uh, domains for China. 
China has loaned the African country of Uganda $3 billion since 2011, and more than a third of Uganda's national debt is now owed to China. Thus, we should probably not be that surprised that the Ugandan foreign ministry issued a statement in October 2019 condemning the Hong Kong protesters as radical and violent and saying, quote, Hong Kong's affairs are China's domestic affairs. We know that when the Houston Rockets general manager expressed support for the protesters, China took the NBA, its most beloved sports league, off the air. And Chinese companies canceled millions of dollars in sponsorship agreements with the Rockets. We also know that the NBA was initially very slow-footed in defending the free speech uh, of uh, one of its own. The website of the Marriott hotel chain, we know these examples listed Hong Kong and Taiwan separately from China on a drop-down menu and had its entire web presence in China shut down until it issued a profuse apology in which it felt condemned to disavow, quote, separatist groups that subvert the sovereignty and territorial integrity of China, end quote. And again, remember, this is an American company whose speech and statements and views are being altered, uh, you know, again, on an issue of deep concern to China, but nonetheless, uh, it's impacting the free speech of American multinationals. The tactics China has employed inside Taiwan, which was mentioned earlier, are worth studying because they could easily be used elsewhere. Taiwan was ranked with Latvia by the VDEM Institute as the place most affected by foreign online disinformation. Uh, and indeed, last year, the Taiwanese legislature passed an anti-infiltration act just weeks before its presidential election, imposing maximum penalties of more than $300,000 and five-year prison sentences for those who accept political funding from a hostile foreign power or help such a power expand its influence in Taiwan. In January, of course, uh, the Taiwanese president received 57% of the vote in the general elections, the most votes ever cast for a Taiwanese candidate. Chinese aggress China's aggressive ex effort to influence the outcome, massive disinformation, cyber attacks, and the co covert purchasing of positive feature stories uh, uh, by China in the Taiwanese media proved ineffective. I gather just from uh, reading the Taiwanese press on this that the, when Chinese operatives, I should stress the English language Taiwanese press, when Chinese operatives seeded stories uh, through Taiwanese Facebook pages, uh, they often used characters that tipped off uh, Taiwanese readers to the foreign origin of the user or the posts. But one can expect these efforts to grow more sophisticated with time. It is clear that when China sees something as a core interest, Concerns about sovereignty are no deterrent. Remember, we've been hearing for generations about sovereignty. This can be immensely damaging to the rule of law in those countries where the long arm of China's extraterritorial reach extends. Chinese operatives have kidnapped so-called fugitives, uh, whether Chinese democracy activists or Hong Kong booksellers, in countries like Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam. It has forced the repatriation of Uyghurs from countries as varied as Egypt, Kazakhstan, and Thailand. One member of Shanghai's Public Security Bureau member put it this way a few years ago, quote, a fugitive is like a flying kite. Even though he is abroad, the string is in China, end quote. I, I recently visited Australia where I heard from a number of people about how tricky it has become to navigate China's stepped up influence there. 
The degree of concern about foreign interference and political meddling varies depending on who one speaks to, but the country is in the midst of a very heated and live debate about everything from Chinese efforts to shut down criticism of Chinese policies on Australian campuses to the impact of Chinese money in the political system. Only in the past two years did the Australian parliament ban foreign political donations and require that foreign agents register as lobbyists. And more recently, just in December, the Morrison government announced that it would be creating a new intelligence task force to, quote, discover, track, and disrupt foreign interference in Australia, end quote, a measure clearly aimed at responding more forcefully to China. Okay, fourth and finally, now China as a norm shaper. And here I will draw on some of my experience uh, working with uh, um, other countries at the UN and working with China at the UN. So from my perspective, it seems at the UN that China has two main goals as it relates uh, to human rights. The first, which is not at all new, is very China specific. And that is to block criticism of China, to prevent discussion of China's human rights practices across a variety of fora, and to deny Taiwan status in the organization. In the period since the PRC first took up China's seat at the UN back in 1971, if you look at that period as a whole up to today, China's leverage and its mobilization clout, its ability to mobilize other countries, is at, of course, its all-time high today. On the rare occasions that countries have proven willing to speak out on China's internal human rights practices, Beijing now has the summoning power to muddle the message. When the British ambassador to the UN, uh, Karen Pierce, issued a statement signed by 22 other countries, including the US, calling for the UN to gain access to the Xinjiang prison camps, China was easily able to mobilize a counterstatement praising China's efforts to fight terrorism. When countries threaten to part way with China, China increasingly threatens to cancel bilateral meetings, as they did over Albania's decision to join uh, the statement to cut off funding streams, or to deny, for example, uh, land to build diplomatic properties or other properties within China. And this is a threat that they made to the Aust Austrians <laughs> over the Uyghur statement. The UN Charter, uh, drafted um, in 1945, opens with the phrase, we the peoples of the United Nations. But for decades, since after the in the aftermath of the founding of the UN, the UN was a largely statist organization that shunned the participation of civil society, which was itself, of course, for many of those years, in a very nascent state all around the world. But that has changed in recent decades. Most side events, and even a surprising number of UN negotiations, have involved in recent years a heterogeneous mix of civil society representatives and governments. Chinese officials have long made clear their discomfort with this development, and their preference for the UN to return to being a statist forum where you, you know, government officials, UN member states and their representatives uh, can participate, but where there's a great skepticism about allowing others to be part of it, even when the negotiations are on topics where civil society brings a comparative advantage over governments. So far, China has used its leverage at the UN uh, to bar participation from civil society, but so far really only in, again, those domains that are near and dear to China. So with regard to issues like the Uyghurs, Taiwan, 
uh, and Hong Kong. And so keeping, they have now with their leverage and especially with their increased financial con contributions to the UN, tremendous leverage, keeping NGOs that are critical of China from receiving UN accreditation and trying to block speakers uh, from raising the plight of the Uyghurs. The second goal, Chinese goal at the UN, um, which I will emphasize now here, is to promote extremely traditional interpretations, old school, conservative interpretations of national sovereignty, which reject scrutiny of human rights inside other countries, or the so-called interference in internal affairs. And it is the actions that China is taking in pursuit of this larger aim uh, that has the potential to weaken international norms of human rights, transparency, and accountability, and that I think pose a great danger to the international human rights system, flawed though it is, as we know it uh, today. The UN human rights system is predicated on a couple ideas. One is the universality of human rights, or put you know, in layman's language, the idea that there is a set of standards that all human beings are endowed with, a set of rights. They're either endowed with them or they aspire to them, right? You can have a big debate about which, um, but by virtue of being human, those are their rights. A set of standards, by which all countries, irrespective of their geography, their culture, their history, or their economic clout, will be measured. So though that idea of human rights and who it holds accountable um, it, you know, has been a central tenet of the United Nations, even if the mechanisms to enforce that idea were quite late in coming over the course of the last three quarters of a century. At China's 2017 inaugural South-South Human Rights Forum, which some 70 countries' representatives attended, President Xi's opening letter to the forum explicitly defined human rights as having both universality and particularity. She noted, quote, human rights must and can only be promoted in light of specific national conditions, end quote. The Beijing Declaration, which grew out of this conference, licensed states to impose restrictions on the exercise of human rights in order to, quote, meet the legitimate needs of national security, public order, public health, public safety, public morals, and the general welfare of the people, end quote. China is spearheading an effort welcomed by undemocratic nations to redefine inalienable rights, human rights, as state-bestowed privileges. China has begun to try to inject its language, again, this kind of state-given conception of what rights are, in various UN fora using language that on its face honestly looks pretty unobjectionable. At the UN Human Rights Council in June 2017, China put forward its first ever independent Human Rights Council resolution in which it called for win-win outcomes and mutually beneficial cooperation. This meant that human rights, uh, in the view of this resolution, must be balanced with economic development needs. A March 2018 Chinese resolution stated that when assessing a nation's responsibilities in the human rights domain, <clears throat> quote, the significance of national and regional particularities and various historical, cultural, and religious backgrounds must be borne in mind, end quote. This language is code 
for avoiding criticism of other governments. Instead, it's about constructive dialogue with states, with governments, with official representatives, provide technical assistance, and capacity building, that these should be the primary tools by which other countries promote human rights. That is, get in behind the government in support of the government. Um, countries that are violating human rights should not be named. They should be engaged in a win-win manner. Now, this resolution, which has all of that language, but also has these broader implications, which are very clear to anybody who's been in negotiations uh, with a representative from China, because they've been trying to get this language into resolutions of this nature for a long time. But this resolution passed with only one no vote, that of the United States itself, which was on the way out of the Human Rights Council, uh, about to bail on engaging on these questions altogether. Most major democracies on the Human Rights Council abstained. In steering and seeking to steer UN norms away from the individual rights, away from individual rights to what China calls harmony, Beijing is bringing a great sense of relief to many countries in the UN, which up to this point have often over the last several decades become the subject of UN reporting. And recall here just for context that more than 100 of the 193 countries who are formal member states of the UN, more than 100 are either only partly free or not free, if you use Freedom House's uh, taxonomy. So UN human rights monitors, you can imagine, and it's true even in democracies, of course, but they have an awful lot to document uh, and have been documenting for some time. In the internet domain, the Chinese government has made clear that blocking free speech on the domestic internet is not enough. A free and open global internet is a threat as well. China has begun hosting world internet conferences. I'm sure there are people here who are experts on this issue. I am not. But it seems an effort to try to affect, again, the broader norms. At the 2015 conference, President Xi proposed internet governance reforms that would stress the importance of cyber sovereignty and, as he put it, the cultivation of good order. No country, he argued, should, quote, connive at or support cyber activities that undermine other countries' national security. So what you do in America, if it undermines my national security back here, that's, that's an issue for me. That's on my radar. So this seems to imply that a free internet that hosts criticisms of China's policies is problematic. <clears throat> for now, Beijing's efforts in international fora, including at the UN, uh, have not managed uh, to materially encroach on the internet outside its borders. But one should reasonably ask how China will use its leverage in the future after it has laid the 5G network inside various democracies. The UN Charter's Article 1 stipulates that one of the purposes of the UN <clears throat> is to promote and encourage respect for human rights and for fundamental freedoms for all without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. That's the, one of the core purposes of the UN Charter, of the UN as stipulated in the UN Charter. Yet, time and again, as I noted, in the last 75 years, states have sheltered one another from scrutiny. Because governments write the checks to fund new UN positions and programs, it took decades to build up an independent human rights architecture within the UN system, apart from fora that just gather states. So, so to build up actual people who carry blue passports, UN passports, who are dedicated to looking at human rights around the world. That took a really long time. 
And yet, even having done so, UN staff at critical moments, and even despite the purpose of the UN Charter, because there are many other things in the UN Charter, but UN staff at critical moments over the years have tended to defer to governments, even when some governments are perpetrating mass atrocities against their people. In 2009, some of you know, the UN failed the people of Sri Lanka miserably in the last stages of its civil war by not sounding the alarm about atrocities underway there, despite the UN having claimed and even having kind of been given the Nobel Prize for having allegedly learned the lessons of Rwanda from 1994 and of Srebrenica from 1995. So a different set of circumstances in Sri Lanka, but nonetheless a case of severe grave violations of international humanitarian law and atrocities and the UN not speaking up. Several years later, after a lot of soul searching, the UN uh, responded to this soul searching by setting up an initiative called Human Rights Upfront, which was a recognition that again, it did not have sufficiently in the DNA of these UN missions around the world and a, and a willingness to speak up in the event they knew things about how people were being uh, abused. And it, this program, Human Rights Upfront, explicitly committed the UN Secretary General and UN staff to place the protection of people at the core of the UN's country-based UN strategies and operational activities around the world. And it committed UN staff to speak out <clears throat> about abuses and looming crises. Unfortunately, in 2017, China used its clout in the UN's Budget Committee to eliminate the Human Rights Upfront office. It has also insisted on cuts to human rights positions in UN peacekeeping missions around the world. And those missions, I want to stress, are thousands of miles away from Taiwan and Hong Kong and the near abroad. So again, it's, it, this is where in the DNA of the United Nations, in the human rights architecture, which took years to build, you're already starting to see this chipping away. Of course, it has to be said the most significant clout that China wields at the UN arguably derives from its permanent seat on the UN Security Council, the same is true uh, of the United States. China, it has to be said, has not vetoed a UN Security Council resolution alone um, in two decades. And the last time it did so, anybody want to guess? This would be like really obscure China watching, but you'd, it would be really impressive. Macedonia, the UN peacekeeping mission in Macedonia, go figure, uh, in 1999, uh, not wanting it to be re-upped um, with Taiwan in mind, issues of territorial integrity and so forth. But the fact that it has only done one solo veto, it tends to sort of, you know, crawl in behind uh, Russia on many issues like Syria, um, but it is a little bit misleading. What is happening more and more is China effectively is using its pocket veto. Uh, it is a major force, and China's not the only country using a pocket veto. Uh, all the permanent members use it. But just to make it visible for purposes of this lecture, um, this is the premier body that is meant to enforce international peace and security. Less than a quarter century after the genocide in Rwanda, China was able, using this pocket veto, to single-handedly keep the Security Council from doing anything in response to the mass killing and ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya people. It was literally like a non-existent forum. It was as if there was no such thing as a Security Council, uh, despite what was being done to the Rohingya. For a permanent member to shield a perceived ally from human rights criticism is not a new development. I want to stress, the United States 
has resisted council actions on Israel-Palestine issues over many years. France, during the Rwandan genocide, defended the Rwandan government in a way uh, that does not stand up well at all in history. The United Kingdom back in the day used its veto to impede council action on the Suez crisis long ago. But I think arguably there's, there's an important difference, which is that China and Russia doctrinally now and ever more vocally and in a more emboldened way are arguing that the Security Council should not even have jurisdiction to butt into the internal affairs of sovereign states. And, these, and China and Russia seem to make no exception when a minority population is being subjected to mass murder or ethnic cleansing or however you want to view the, the Rohingya campaign, the anti-Rohingya campaign. Okay, before closing uh, and, and getting to just some brief uh, remedies or, or steps that one can take uh, with this, these sort of trends in mind, there's just one last area of Chinese influence at the UN that I think is worth scrutinizing, and that is UN peacekeeping. China today, in addition to its big financial clout, which I mentioned becoming the number two donor, but it contributes three times as many peacekeepers, some 2,500 around the world, so soldiers and police, three times as many as any other permanent member of the Security Council. This gives it an outsized influence in defining how UN Blue Helmets do their jobs out in the field to protect civilians. And I want to say this is a, a trend of Chinese participation that the United States and President Obama encouraged. It's part of the kind of collaboration and the sort of um, action uh, on behalf of the commons uh, that in general, I think, uh, one uh, can welcome. But what we're seeing is that Chinese peacekeepers appear to have been trained to take a quite passive approach uh, when it comes to civilian protection in the field. And, and this is inside baseball for purposes of this lecture, but uh, there is a very, very significant debate going on within the family of countries who contribute to UN peacekeeping about how aggressively peacekeepers should protect civilians. And there's an old school, more traditional approach, which is to sort of sit back and to be just this uh, presence as protection. So you don't do all that much, but by being there, you hope that you're deterring. And then very much influenced by what happened uh, to the Rwandan people during the genocide there, the government of Rwanda and a lot of other African governments who've seen uh, atrocities in their countries have taken a very different approach, arguing that if you're out there and civilians think that you're there to protect them, you need to move energetically to be out patrolling and uh, trying to impede those who are trying to perpetrate atrocities. China now has the clout financially and because of the boots it has on the ground to alter the mandates of UN peacekeeping missions to de-emphasize the protection of civilians and to return the rules of engagement, to return to rules of engagement that left civilians immensely vulnerable uh, to attack. And so I just want to flag that issue. Okay, what to do, what to do with, with no time left, what to do um, first. Uh, I feel like every lecture that I've heard, you know, since November 2016, the first prescription uh, has been the same, no matter the topic. We must strengthen the internal workings of our democracy at home. <laughs> I think the morning after the Iowa caucus, this this has new new force. Uh, but seriously, I mean, especially when it comes to this competition among models. 
these different models. My first point tonight, uh, you know, the ills that we face here in the United States, the inequality, the big money in politics, voter suppression, gerrymandering, polarization, racism and exclusion. I mean, this is part of the, there's the China part of the story and there's the other part of the story about why uh, the appeal of an authoritarian capitalist model um, has grown and will continue to grow if we don't get our own house uh, in order. And this is, I mentioned, you know, trends in this country, but many of these trends are played out in democracies all around the world. Part of strengthening democracy, of course, also uh, means enhancing our vigilance as it relates to foreign interference. In Australia, <clears throat> the recent steps I mentioned, taken to ban foreign political donations and introduce a foreign agent's register for lobbyists, makes sense. As we in the US know from hard-earned recent experience and belated learning, um, but learning that has not yet translated into steps taken at the federal government level to enhance protection in advance of November 2020, crazily. It is absolutely critical to be alert, though, as citizens to the variety of ways in which foreign powers can abuse these unpoliced social media platforms um, to shape public perceptions and even public policy. It turns out it's incredibly easy, as we know, to forward a salacious false news item and much harder to take the time to verify what one has read. Uh, and democracies need to learn from one another. Uh, there was a lot of experimentation going on right now. <clears throat> a Taiwanese nonprofit has built a crowdsourced anti-hoax fact-checking platform called COFAX, where, uh, not Sandy, COFAX, uh, co-c-o-f-a-c-t-s, where a user can message this, again, crowdsourced platform, COFAX, to verify whether they, what they are reading on social media is true, and volunteers that staff this chatbot will verify the content and respond to the user. Because it used to be, or it is, in most places, there's just such a lag that you've already forwarded it and the, the falsehood has, has uh, gone viral. Uh, another nonprofit in Taiwan, uh, Fake News Cleaner, uh, holds talks uh, you know, with citizens, and particularly with young people, to try to help citizens differentiate between real and fake news. I'll just add, on this, under the broad chapeau of strengthening our democracies, one small um, but really critical point here. Part of shoring up our democracy also means uh, taking measures here in the United States and in other democracies to protect Chinese Americans and ethnic Chinese uh, living in the US to protect them from discrimination and from prejudice. This is a growing danger in Australia, the United States, and other democracies where the debate about China is gripping imaginations, um, but sometimes lacking uh, the nuance that is needed. Uh, the Trump administration has apparently considered banning visas for Chinese nationals to study in the US, for example. These uh, and other such responses must be rejected. Second, briefly, democracies must rejuvenate and strengthen alliances among democracies, among uh, with fellow democracies, so as to better and more often speak in one voice, including within international institutions like the UN. Uh, sometimes in our insecurity these days vis-a-vis -vis China and because of our own democracy and all else, um, it's easy to forget that democracy uh, remains the dominant force of government in countries around the world. 
Some 55% of states today are democracies and they are home to over half of the global population. Indeed, despite the very real and worrisome backsliding, the percentage of democratic countries in the world is still at or near its all-time high, reached uh, not long after the end of the Cold War, according to the various uh, metrics. The economic heft of Western democracies dwarfs that of even an economically potent China. And the ability of China to silence any one country using its economic leverage is greatly diminished if we can coordinate our positions and stand up collectively on behalf of one another's. A cross-regional coalition of democracies that is synced up can still have uh, great influence. And here again, just banding together to protect civil society's vital role inside countries and at the UN in monitoring and strengthening human rights practices is critical. We can also be teaming up to look out for one another, as the Taiwanese example shows, uh, to prevent cyber and other forms of foreign interference, including but not only in election cycles. As David Lee, Taiwan's national security chief, put it, quote, Taiwan cannot address cybersecurity issues alone. We are keen to work with like-minded countries to ensure that our democratic institutions are protected, end quote. In the old days, not that long ago, I'm old enough or, to remember when the United States would take a convening role on dealing with issues like this at a very senior level to prevent foreign interference. But because of the cloud around the 2016 election, this has been something President Trump has been extremely reluctant to lead on. Finally, actually finally, it is incumbent on those who believe in human rights and democratic values to defend the model, speaking with more confidence about the virtues of accountable governance and the dangers of rule by fear. In autocracies, economic growth over time can be impeded by stagnant state-owned enterprises and the lack of transparency in these economies. Even in China, growth is slowing. Uh, its economy is right now growing still rapidly by global standards, but at its lowest rate in almost 30 years. And one wonders over time, again, how secure investors will feel with the arrest of expatriates and the absence of due process and property rights. Autocrats often overreach because they don't hear critical voices in their inner circles and often prefer the company of sycophants. By the way, even in democracies, uh, when you're having a bad day, it can be nice to hear from a sycophant. Um, uh, but if you work for President Xi, you would likely be reluctant to be the bearer of bad news to your leader. These are not systems, as a general matter, that embrace the logic of the team of rivals. And the early forensics, and I defer people here, and I'm sure there are many people who are very worried about this uh, from a human standpoint, but on the spread of the coronavirus, where some Chinese officials refused to test patients for the virus because they were afraid of delivering bad news to the party boss and afraid of tarnishing China's coming out story, these are a reminder of uh, some of the possible um, uh, deadly consequences of a culture of fear. In the military, in repressive societies, the most capable officers may be less likely to rise than the most loyal. And because ethnic, religious, and national identity is often stymied in illiberal systems, it frequently leads to social unrest and uh, even violence. And let us recall uh, so many of the positive trends around the world. In 2018, 
<clears throat> while there was significant backsliding in many parts of the world, 50 countries experienced uh, net gains in freedom. This is according to Freedom House's latest report. They do it in 2019 for 2018. 2019, as we know from just reading the news, was the year of the protest where governments in Sudan, uh, Armenia, uh, and places where you would not have expected democratic uprisings um, have given way uh, to democratic transitions. And it has to be said in Hong Kong, where both models, uh, democratic and authoritarian capitalist, are in close proximity and contention, uh, Hong Kong voters weighed in quite resoundedly. None of the steps that I've described are sufficient to negate the colossal influence that China can bring to bear on human rights in the years ahead but all are necessary to preserve the power of democratic forces and norms and to try to ensure that the repressive dimensions of the Chinese domestic model are not exported and scaled to the detriment of individual rights and ultimately to the detriment of international stability. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much, uh, Ambassador Power, for that uh, learned and thoughtful and wise account of um, uh, some of the consequences of China's rise. I think your um, framing of the of the of the issue in terms of China as example, as enabler, as agent, and as norm shaper uh, is a, a very very thoughtful way of parsing the topic that I think will affect many of, of many of us in how we think about about the, the the issue. I can't help but make an initial comment that it's a bleak prognosis in part because your recommendations with the exception of the third one, which is something we do here a lot yeah. uh, of speaking out, those are heavy lifts, uh, and the the, uh, the it will be a, a real challenge to make those effective enough against these larger trends that you've that you've uh, discussed so eloquently in your lecture. What's what's the Samuel Johnson line though? Nothing like a trip to the gallows to focus the mind. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe so maybe, maybe that we have be... we have cause now. <laughs> Although that I mean that turns to our thoughts on the current American political scene. And anyways, um, the, uh, I want to maybe start the questioning. We have, we have uh, uh, plenty of, a little time for questions. I want to maybe start things off with a quick question about your comments about peacekeeping, which slot into debates with discussions we've been having here at the Fairbanks Center, at the Kennedy School, and in, in Washington and around the United States about the um, uh, reflecting on the, on the legacy of engagement of, of uh, on the whole, was the policy of engaging with China, which the US has been pursuing now for four decades, has that been a net gain or a net loss? And your comment about peacekeeping made me, made me ask that question for the first time about peacekeeping. Is it, is, it, is it good for the international order on balance or bad for the international order that China provides such a large proportion of the global uh, peacekeeping force? Um. So I should I should have stipulated. So it's there are 110,000 uh, soldiers and police police involved in peacekeeping missions around the world, and those missions they're not your grandfather's peacekeeping missions. You know, there's like one Cyprus mission where people get to actually just kind of hang out and be the interpositioning. All the other missions, by and large, are really difficult environments where there is effectively no peace to keep. Um, and, uh, I mentioned that because, you know, 
on that issue, you know, one could give a whole speech on just uh, peacekeeping doctrine and how challenging it is. But in fairness to all of those countries that contribute to peacekeeping and have uh, doctrinally a view of peacekeeping that I think is anachronistic and likely to result in, uh, unfortunately, great civilian harm, in fairness to them, they are being sent by their countries to deploy to places that their family members and neighbors don't care about. <laughs> um, and many, like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, who also have the Chinese, uh, with some dissent within the ranks, but by and large have the, the same kind of Chinese view about passive peacekeeping, and they don't use that phrase, they don't call it passive peacekeeping, traditional peacekeeping. Um, but, you know, the governments actually get significant resources from the UN, they get, they, they get, and the end, but the peacekeepers themselves don't see the payments. And, you know, I just get, I offer this context. The second piece of context I'd offer is that, you know, Western governments used to do peacekeeping and they got out of the peacekeeping business in the 1990s. And so there are actually huge shortfalls. And of course, there, the United States and the United Kingdom and France, these, we Western permanent members of the Security Council, we have no hesitation authorizing the deployment of 20,000 troops to Congo, but with no reflection, and U.S. in fairness is overstretched in a thousand other ways militarily. Um, but, you know, countries like Denmark, France, Spain, Italy, you know, used to be, um, because they weren't doing some of the hard security things that the United States was doing, this was a place they kind of gave it the office. And so, um, it, it, so because of the shortfalls, the UN Department of Peacekeeping, where these crises unfold, is a little bit desperate for bodies, if you see what I'm saying. And so the question is complicated by, by the fact that there was actually just a question of, of numbers. And China has only in the last five years, as you know, moved into deploying infantry. So previously, what China was deploying was engineering and logistics battalions. Great, right? The question gets contested. Uh, when it's about actually people who are supposed to be out and about and patrolling, who don't speak the local language, who have very, you know, it's just like our own tragic national experiences and being in other people's countries and not actually being in a position to even see the threats because we're bunkered but in these huge bases. Um, and so, you know, it's there that I think if we could uh, expand the number of troop contributors to the enterprise, you know, my own view is that China's, uh, until China shifts doctrinally, and it's gonna be the Africans, I, I do think over time they will shift if they continue to deploy in these missions, but it'll be pressure from their African friends that will cause them to shift. Um, but in the meantime, the, again, such great capabilities in terms of rapid deployment, engineering, logistics, and that's a comparative advantage compared to other developing countries that are part of this enterprise. Thank you very much. Um, the floor is now open for questions. Please uh, raise your hand and we'll have a microphone brought to you uh, in a break with our usual practice. You are welcome to identify yourself, but don't feel that you need to. And let me also say out of respect to our speaker, out of our respect to the occasion, um, please have your question be a question. Uh, gentleman in the back. Um, thank you so much, Ambassador. My name is Andy. I'm a second-year graduate student in the Department of Government. Um, I wanted to ask about what I see as a potential contradiction in your portrait of Chinese action. That may be real. It may not be a contradiction that you made. It may be, really be a contradiction in what they do, which is at the same time that they lay out a vision of a principled sort of old-school sovereignty, they are also undertaking influence 
operations in other countries in the world. Um, first, I would ask if you think that that's a real contradiction. And second, um, if it is a real contradiction, is there potentially an effective, if unpalatable bargain that we go along with the vision of maximal sovereignty provided that China actually abide by that and end its influence operations abroad? That's, that's really interesting. It is a colossal contradiction and it's a familiar contradiction, <laughs> right? I mean, our president is, the current president is, you know, every other word in an international fora is about sovereignty and the importance of sovereignty. And then we're going to go forth and kill this person here and this person, you know, I mean, so it's not a new contradiction, but it is, it is rich coming, I mean, given just how many, I mean, basically since China's entry into the international system as the PRC, just how central that is to China's identity and, and the absence of cognitive dissonance. But again, you know, Chinese diplomats are the only, are not the only diplomats who lack self-awareness uh, as they defend their country's actions or, or advocate. But, you know, especially when you look at these, like, the, you know, the reaching into other countries, which Chinese operatives, like kidnapping people effectively and bringing them back. I mean, really? And, and even, and, you know, I didn't get into it all. I was trying, it's so hard to narrow this topic, but, um, you know, even on some of the, the, on the, on the, the really positive dimensions of China's infrastructure development and economic development that, and, and really, I mean, just offering developing countries, some developing countries, a lifeline that's really, really constructive and important. But, you know, the way it's done, you know, it, it's a transplant, uh, you know, Chinese workers and, and to sort of bring China, you know, to the other countries. I mean, from the standpoint of nationals, at least in the kinds of countries I visited and interviewed people in, you know, there's just a sense of like, wait, so what about sovereignty? Like, you know, but I mean, again, like they want, they want the roads, but they'd like a few of the jobs, you know, at the same time, or like Chinese travel agencies. I was in Mozambique uh, a year ago and, and just, you know, they just, the, the Chinese tourists who come to Mozambique, just the, the, they're just in a bubble, in a Chinese-owned bubble, and maybe that is sovereignty. Maybe it's like keeping, I don't know, how you interact with the country if you're, but um, so in terms of the grand bargain, it just, I think, um, and this is a much longer conversation, but I just, like sovereignty didn't become conditional over time, you know, out of some Pollyannish, um, you know, kumbaya, like, aren't human rights great? Like, it became conditional because, in the first instance, in the UN Charter, because we saw that when we the world looked away from Nazi Germany passing the Nuremberg Laws and, you know, killing Jews in Kristallnacht, and, and we're just like, oh, but it's within the borders. States can do what they want within their borders, you know, that it ended up being kind of predictive, as it's proving in the China context also, of extraterritorial uh, ambition, um, you know, that in other words, there's a very pragmatic, and again, it's, uh, one could go on at length about this, but, it, but, but there's, there's a, a core pragmatism at the heart of attention to human rights practice for a lot of the reasons at the end, when I was saying like, let's not forget some of the real worrisome dimensions of an authoritarian and repressive system and how like a lot of those dimensions, if there is brittleness to that, which I think, you know, we, we, I still very much believe that it's a brittle system 
I mean, the consequences go way beyond what happens within particularly a country as, as powerful as China. So I don't, I don't think the devil's bargain would work. And I think it really would be, a, it would be a deal with the devil, not because it's immoral, uh, but because it would undo decades of learning about why we actually believe that, I mean, even the Arab Spring, which is taken by, Ch by China as exhibit A of why democratization and human rights are terrible, to me is exhibit A of why you absolutely have to gradually you know, pursue the path, if you're a state, a government of political evolution, because the human longings are such that at some point, you know, like the twig bends and snaps and you get revolution. And that is totally destabilizing and, and, and so often turns out badly, you know, on, on humanitarian, economic and strategic uh, axes. But you're absolutely right about the contradiction. And, and I would just put it in the context of, um, you know, that, that sovereignty is invoked by a lot of countries who are doing an awful lot to trample other countries' sovereignty. China just happens to be a major powerhouse doing it on a very big stage. Um, Julie, in front of you, the, the lady in gray. Thank you, Ambassador. My name is Zhao Wen. Uh, I'm, a, I'm studying international development at Harvard Kennedy School. My question is around what you described in terms of the relationship between China and African countries which, uh, in my view, will become more and more important strategic in various um, realms. And so are there, I think you painted a pretty bleak picture of uh, the relationship between China and the influence that China has on these African countries, especially in terms of, uh, you mentioned Carmen Reinhardt's article about hidden debt. Are there any bright spots to quote? Uh, I'm, I mean, you're making change when changes hard class. But are there any bright spots <laughs> or anything that you can point to that could signal a different way to view this relationship or s use the fact that China does have this outsized influence to shape the African development um, in a more positive light. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I, I hope I was clear here. I mean, you know, the, the, the development and infrastructure returns for countries that, you know, did not have someplace else to turn, right? It wasn't like there was this flood of American investment and some analogous you know, non-corrupt, indigenous way to get roads built, you know, into the hinterland or, you know, here or there or to get, you know, um, 3G or 4G or, you know, a port built or, I mean, I mean, you know, if you, if you talk to people, I mean, the economic dignity, the, actually what I haven't talked much about and because I had to narrow, but economic and social rights, I mean, part of the UN charter, right, there's, there are profound possibilities there, and that's why, uh, and, and profound returns. I just think the reason that you're seeing pushback, at least in some sub-Saharan African uh, countries, in many, I think, uh, is just that it need not be done exactly in the way that it's being done. So, so b both in terms of the, um, at times, usurious interest rates charged, the Sri Lanka example is often cited there, but you know there are others where people are renegotiating, like Sierra Leone, Tanzania. Others are renegotiating their agreements. So I think it could be that is a place for improvement. The in terms of the, for lack of a better word, the staffing of the projects, right? Much more indigenous local labor. That would be then you'd get you know if you're those countries, you get not only the longer term 
return on the investment, but but wow, what a boost you know to the local economy. I know that that's that part of the reason China's in it is to offer those jobs uh, to you know to its own workers, and so I know that's complicated and maybe wishful thinking. Um, and then thirdly, and here I'm again, you probably know about this and and can educate me, but you know my understanding is that there is at least some progress. You know, it, it, it used to be that these were over, you know, they were almost inevitably come in, you know, years late, overpriced with a ton of corruption. And that partly because of how much China itself is spending and, and some of this renegotiation of debt. And but that there's maybe a little we're starting to see more oversight also by China on these projects or more more of an integrity to the pro I don't want to overstate it because then I'm not an expert. But so I think on those three dimensions, though, corruption staffing or workforce, um, and what was my first one? Um, when you're answering on the fly, you forget. Um, anyway, uh, but on each of those, what was it? Financing. Yeah, and, and the, and the fi yes, exactly, the exorbitant debt uh, or the interest rates. I think on each of those three dimensions, there's room for progress, but, you know, again, if people want to put food on the table, right? They want um, to be able to uh, have access to the, I mean, here's the irony, right? To have access to the internet. Um, and and fast fast speed internet. They want those opportunities, um, young people especially. And that's one of the reasons you see the public opinion polling what it is among the young. And so, I think they're voting with their opinions on what they think of some of this. But the backlash is real, and and so I think you know recalibrating some of that would be great. And of course, in we were talking about Africa, but if also as part of the development, they could stop building coal plants. I'd be grateful for that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for other reasons. Uh, up the front here, please. Who's? In, in, in black and then in brown. Thanks very much. Um, Ambassador Power, thank you very much for a fascinating talk on a very important topic. Um, I'm a public equities investor. I oversee um, a fairly substantial amount of assets, specifically in the emerging markets. And China is playing such an important role in this aspect as well. In the last couple of years, it's liberalized its equity market to foreign investment. And so this is really a fascinating period for, for emerging market public equities investors where we have the opportunity as we haven't had historically to invest in China's local markets. What this means is that our 401ks and for any of us who are invested in public equities will shift from something like a one-third exposure in our emerging market portfolios to China to one-half. So this is a very substantial change in terms of public equity investments across the globe and um, really led by U.S. investors because we represent so much of the global equity markets. I'm wondering how you think investors might think about this notion of human rights in the context of our equity allocations. Um, some senators, Marco Rubio in, in particular, have announced that there should be structural impediments to investing in China's local market because of human rights abuses and uh, intellectual property concerns. So I'm curious your view from that perspective, how might an investor think about accounting for these risks? And secondly, and relatedly, sort of the million dollar question, when we think about risk of investing in China, to what extent is there risk of a revolution due to these human rights concerns? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to defer on that. You've got more expertise. You, you've got more expertise. I only get one question. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Is that your son? You're unbelievable. So you just have to give me parenting tips because I have a son the same age, I think, and this would never happen. So much more important than tips on equity. Uh, I don't know what you're doing. But um, so here, you know, just to take it up a level, because um, I really will exceed my, uh, my expertise, but um, I think in the business, in the corporate sector generally, um, that there is, that, that the, the biggest risk of what you've described in your sector, but also in others, is that China, a government that is detaining, you know, more than a million Muslims, you know, maybe close to two million, and, you know, not, it's not clear that there's a key to get out of the facilities, despite all the talk of re-education, and that has the citizen score, and, you know, so my talk was all about, you know, events elsewhere, but, um, you know, your company is comprised of citizens who might have views on that, and what we learned in, in or, or what got exposed in the NBA kerfuffle Right, is the extent to which the hunger for that market and for those returns um, alters something very fundamental, which is a which is a willingness to stand up for free speech. So, so here was a you know, and 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 just I'll, I'll digress on the NBA for a second. I mean, the NBA has a product that is uh, not fungible, right? And and but a lot of companies. You know, whether if you're selling shoes or you're a hotel chain, right? There is actual competition. So when China, I mean, the NBA should have been, you know, right out the gate. I mean, again, it, they were blindsided, I guess, and hadn't thought enough about it in advance. But, but they had a lot of leverage in that. And I think what what is starting to happen as the kinds of shifts you're describing occur is that American companies um, and the people who work for those companies start to feel as if they have no leverage. So I guess what I would say is that uh, there's the, the brittleness issue, and I think you know the, the coronavirus, which is a heartbreaking example of this, but notwithstanding all the lessons of SARS that were used, it's really hard to learn those lessons when the entire culture is, is or if not the entire culture, when a very significant part of the culture is one where you're afraid of getting in trouble. <laughs> and you're afraid of saying what's true. I mean, if that's if that's like a big, and so that's going to influence things like that. So there's that risk; those risks exist. But the broader issue is, you know, if our if our hunger for that market and our hunger for those profits is altering who we are. And and so you know, I I got in touch after the whole NBA thing. I realized like, okay, the NBA is going to be fine. But what about all those companies that pull their ads? you know, within seconds of China complaining about Maury's tweet. It was like, like NBA, we never heard of the NBA. Like, or, or, you know, I mean, ESPN like claimed it had like a faulty satellite or something, just made up this. And really, I mean, it was, it was, it was like, you know, like the worst version of Communist Party, like, you know, misinformation, like, and, and a lack of transparency and accountability even for our own companies. But partly they're, they're, they're each thinking uh, as solo operators. And the only way I can imagine some of that leverage being offset, 
because China has substantial leverage because of the 1.4 billion people and the appeal of that, but is if the collective action problem among companies can be overcome. And if the private sector bans, I don't know if that has application, you're, 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 you know, but, you know, if we could, it's a lot like the point I'm making within the United Nations among democratic governments, if we can speak in one voice, uh, which we, you know, we're, we're never perfect at, but we were a lot better at than we are now when we're not even caucusing together as democracies, uh, in part because of U.S. decision making. But, uh, but you know, for all the hotel chains, for all the, you know, the different multinationals to be, you know, for the Chamber of Commerce to be thinking about this, because the implications of Chinese, and right now, again, it's only about Taiwan and Hong Kong, let's say, um, but like soon, maybe it'll be about Myanmar and maybe it'll be about South Sudan and maybe, and then what does that, what does that mean, you know, for, for people like, does that mean the Chinese government using its fancy technology is scrutinizing shareholders, social media to see whether, or their employees, social media to see whether they've said anything critical. So that's, that's actually a, that would influence our political culture our way of life, you know, in, in potentially profound ways. Um, and so I, I don't sense that there's enough thinking collectively about how to be less vulnerable to the kind of, you know, what amounts to intimidation and blackmail even um, that will be exerted and and to not underestimate in, in whatever enterprise you're in, you know, the extent to which China's technological ability uh, to to see into the views of people who are affiliated with your company. I mean, my understanding now is that Apple. Uh, I'd be I'd be shocked. We've we all know about Maps and Apple, and that's all been in the news. But if 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 I went to Apple and said I'd like to make a documentary about dictatorships, I want to look at three dictatorships or three authoritarian. You know, whatever you want to call President Xi, but three authoritarian systems. I don't think Apple, if they thought it was a great idea independent of that, I don't think Apple would make a documentary where there was something on China in the documentary. And that's, so what does that mean? Like American, you know, the, I mean, maybe there are other people who would, but uh, no, could, could a filmmaker get into China to make that a whole separate question? But just in terms of like our companies, our culture, our audience, our citizens, that reach is happening, you know, in pretty subtle ways now in terms of self-censorship, but it's where it's going, you know, so I'd be worried about that with overexposure. I know there, I know there, thank you very much. You'll defer the question on the future revolution in China, I think wisely. To you. To, fine. To you. Um, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm getting frantic signaling from the back. A number of you have been waiting patiently for, the, for, for, for questions. I would invite you to be the first to buttonhole the ambassador oh, uh, in the reception. Uh, please join us to continue the conversation um, in a reception uh, uh, behind this, uh, this auditorium. I just want to say very quickly a couple of words of thanks. First of all, to the wonderful team, the wonderful team at the Fairbank Center who have put together this uh, this terrific event, uh, to Professor Alford, who I guess now I'm going to have to refer to as the muscle from now on, in that he can uh, deliver the goods. But in particular, to uh, to our speaker, to Ambassador Power, thank you, for a wonderful presentation.